Welcome to Northridge Church. That's what we're about. That's what we love to see. That's what we celebrate. We have a culture of celebrating life change. And so thanks for being here, taking a piece of your weekend, hanging out with us. Whether you're at our Rochester campus, you're at our Webster campus, or you're on your television or on one of your devices, man, welcome home. And thanks for being part of the family. And, you know, in college, uh, my buddy and I, one day we decided that we were going to do some shopping. And so Dave and my buddy, we, jo- we jumped into my Oldsmobile Alero and we started heading to the store and we were driving on this highway, and I was in the right lane, and there was this red Jeep uh, with a husband and wife in in the left lane, and we came to this red light, and we stopped, and we were waiting for the light to turn green, and it it turned green, and so we were driving along, and uh, this red Jeep slowly just barely pulled out in front of me, but the problem was, is as they pulled out in front of me, they began to merge into my lane. And so I thought, you know what, I'll shift over a a little bit, give them some space, and they'll realize, hey, my car's there, it's not going to work, so they'll course correct. But as this Jeep continues to, to go into my lane, and I'm running out of real estate on the right side of the road, I honk my horn lightly to let them know I'm there, they can't come in. But to make matters a little more awkward, we came to a red light 100 yards further on. And so we're sitting at this red light. There's the red Jeep. Here's me. And I'm like, just don't look over there. Just don't look. It's okay. And my buddy Dave thought it was a really good idea to lean over me and be like, what are you doing? Like, learn how to drive. You could kill somebody. And I don't know what was going on in this... uh, this husband's life, if work was stressful, but he had reached a boiling point. And apparently I was there for it because he opened up his door and he walked over the the car and he was ready to brawl right there in the street. And here's the problem. He was huge. (laughs) I didn't stand a chance and I wasn't willing to get my butt kicked in front of the public for everybody to see. And so I'm sitting there like, what do I do? This is really awkward. This guy's crazy. And so I'm like, turn green, turn green, it's green. And I just peeled it out of there. And like I said, I don't know what was going on in this man's life that he just was so frustrated with me and Dave that he reached this boiling point where he was ready to do whatever it took to feel better. And today we're actually going to see that in Moses' life, where he gets so frustrated with the nation of Israel that he chooses to do something he regrets. And if you got your Bibles, we're going to start in Numbers chapter 13, Numbers chapter 13, and so grab your device or grab your Bible and turn there and put a bookmark in Numbers 13 and also in Numbers chapter 20 because we're going to cover those two chapters today. And if you haven't really been with us, we've been in this series called Moses, and we've just kind of been navigating Moses' life, his, his journey with God and his relationship with God, him as a baby becoming the leader of the nation of Israel. And we've, we've covered a lot of ground in Moses' life. We've seen him uh, grow up, become a leader, deliver the nation of Israel out of bondage, out of slavery, and now they're going towards the land God has promised for them. He promised Abram he'd make them a great nation, and he's providing. And in Numbers chapter 13, the nation of Israel is like right there. They're at the cusp of the promised land, a land that God had for them so they could grow and expand and become the nation he wanted them to. They're right there, and so God gives Moses some really clear instructions. Numbers 13, it said, The Lord said to Moses, Send some men to explore the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the Israelites. From each ancestral tribe, send one of its leaders. 
So at the Lord's command, Moses sent, out, sent them out from the desert of Paran. And so Moses does exactly what God says. He sends out 12 spies. And we have to notice something really important here. These spies going out into the the land of Canaan was not to, to gain some military advantage for the army of Israel. No, God had already said clearly, I'm giving you this land. You you don't have to worry about the battle or the war because this land is yours. All you have to do is take it. And so these spies were not designed to give somebody some military advantage. It was to get the nation of Israel excited about the land God was giving them. The spies were to come back into the nation of Israel and be like, you wouldn't believe how beautiful and how amazing this land God has is for us. So he sends out the spies and they come back in verse uh, 27, they give this report. It says, they gave Moses this account. We went into the land to which you sent us and it does flow with milk and honey. Here's its fruits. And so again, we, at the beginning of this, we see this excitement, right? This land is fertile. It's, it's beautiful. It's gorgeous, man. It's awesome. It flows with milk and honey. Now, I don't know if I've ever heard anybody describe a, a state in Pennsylvania or the Caribbean as a, a land flowing with milk and honey. So that doesn't make sense in our culture, but we could easily say it, it was a land that flowed with Chick-fil-A, right? Like, come on, like, hey, all the, you can eat, you know, chicken nuggets and chicken sandwiches, rivers of Chick-fil-A sauce, hallelujah. Let's go. Take me to the promised land. Bad news, guys, it's closed on Sundays. So I just got you all excited for nothing. So they're excited, but it changes really fast in just the next verse. It says, but the people who live there are powerful and their cities are fortified and very large. We even saw descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites live in the Negev, and the Hittites, Jebusites, and Amorites live in the hill country, and the Canaanites live near the sea along the Jordan. And so what started as excitement over the land quickly changes because the spies are like, those people are huge. Their cities are huge. They're fortified. What are we going to do to defeat them? But then immediately Caleb, one of the spies, he interrupts them and says, then Caleb silenced the people before Moses and said, we should go up and take possession of the land for we can certainly do it. So Caleb interrupts the other spies like, no, 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 this is the land God is giving it to us. Let's go take it. It's ours. And it's interesting to me that they're even having this debate, right? Because didn't God clearly say, I'm giving you this land? Why are they arguing whether or not they should take it when God says, it's yours, it's beautiful, go inhabit it, take it, it's yours. But yet they're arguing over whether they should or not. Why? Because they're doubting God. They're doubting what God says. And it's really easy as we read the story to to, to judge the nation of Israel. Like, what is their problem, right? I mean, they have seen miracle after miracle, the provision of God over and over again. Why would they doubt him now? But then it hit me, and it probably should hit all of us, is how often do we do the same thing in our lives? I would bet that all of us have seen God's provision in one way or another. We've seen God's provision over and over the course of our lives, but yet don't we often doubt the very things that we know he said to be true? Let me put it to you like this. How many of you asked God when when life gets a little bit rocky, when life gets hard and it goes down a path maybe you didn't, you didn't want, how many of us have asked God, are you there and do you care? 
And those are clearly things that God makes clear in his word, that he will never leave us nor forsake us, and that he cares desperately for us. But yet we often doubt it, don't we? Or, or maybe it's happened like this, maybe right now in, in this season of wildness and COVID kind of rising again and fears raging, and you're wondering, man, man, I don't know about my business. God, are you going to provide for me? Are you going to come through and you're going to provide for my family? And we know in God's name, he's Jehovah Jireh, my provider, but yet we often doubt that, don't we? And the very thing that we judge the nation of Israel for, we constantly do in our culture today. We doubt the things that God has made clear to us. And it gets worse for the nation of Israel because not only do they doubt God, they go in the opposite direction that God wanted them to. Verse 31, it says, but the men who had gone up with him said, we can't attack those people. They are stronger than we are. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they had explored. And so 10 of the 12 spies go all throughout Israel, like, we can't go there. There's no way. It's a scary place. We can't take that land. And it leads the nation of Israel to not want to go into the the promised land that God had for them. And can I tell you, God wasn't happy. God was furious about it, and he responded. The first thing he did was kill 10 of the 12 spies immediately. The spies who spread the bad report, God took them out. And to make matters worse for the nation of Israel is that generation that agreed with the spies, they would would no longer enter the promised land. They would have to wander for about 40 years until that generation died off and the next generation would go into the land God had for them. And so that takes us to Numbers chapter 20, where the nation of Israel has been wandering for 40 years. And can you imagine Moses having to navigate this journey of frustration, this journey of whining and complaining from the nation of Israel? I think we all can kind of relate that Moses probably at this point has kind of reached his boiling point. He's reached this place where he's so frustrated with Israel. They've seen God's provision. They've seen God's provision. And what they do regularly, they just complain and complain. And we read about it, and we we grow tired of the nation of Israel. Can you imagine living through it and leading through it? And in Numbers 20, the wandering season, about 40 years, is done. Scholars believe they're at the end of the wandering. And guess what happens to the nation of Israel? They become in need. Look what it says. It says, now there was no water for the community. Sound familiar, right? You just go back two weeks to Aaron Hickson, and he talked about God's provision and his testing for the nation of Israel. Here it is again. There's no water. And what do they do? And the people gathered in opposition to Moses and Aaron. They quarreled with Moses and said, if only we had died when our brothers fell dead before the Lord. Why did you bring the Lord's community into the wilderness that we and our livestock should die here? Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to this terrible place? It has no grain or figs, grapevines or pomegranates, and there is no water to drink. And, and here we go again, right? This, this cyclical journey that Israel is on where they become in need and what do they do? They whine and complain. I mean, you read Exodus, you read Numbers, and you read Deuteronomy. You see this cyclical journey that they just don't learn the lesson that God is trying to teach them over and over again, but yet God is patient. Man, we should all say amen to that because God's been patient with us. And he's patient with Israel. And guess what he does? He provides for them yet again. They, they whine and they moan to Moses and God provides a way. Verse seven, it says, the Lord said to Moses, take the staff and you and your brothers, Aaron, gather the assembly together. Speak to the rock before their eyes and it will pour out its water. 
You will bring water out of the rock for the community so they and their livestock can drink. And so God gives Moses clear instructions. He says, here's how you're going to provide for the nation of Israel. And right here in these next verses, we get to see Moses at a weak point. We get to realize that even some of the greatest heroes of the Bible make some really poor choices. This is the moment that makes Moses, for all of us, kind of really relatable because we all get his failure. We see his frustration building to the point with the nation of Israel where God tells him what to do and Moses chooses his own way. Verse 9, it says this, so Moses took the staff from the Lord's presence just as he commanded him. He and Aaron gathered the assembly together in front of the rock and Moses said to them, listen, you rebels. I bet you that felt good. (laughs) Moses is like, listen, you rebels. Must we bring you water out of this rock? Then Moses raised his arm, struck the rock twice with his staff, water gushed out, and the community and their livestock drank. And it would be really easy for us to just read that passage, be like, Moses did what God said, and God provided water. But don't miss the small details. Don't miss the small, what seems like insignificant disobedience Moses chooses to God that we might just graze over. God said to speak to the rock. Moses struck it twice. Right. That's not that big of a deal, is it? I mean, it shouldn't be, right? The, the rock doesn't have feelings. It didn't mind, and yet God still provided. Let's move on in life. But can I tell you today, God does not tolerate disobedience. And it doesn't matter who it is. I know in our culture today, if you have power and money and position in our culture, you can do whatever you want and get away with it, but not with God. Because God does not tolerate disobedience. In fact, his leader, you would think God would give this leader, Moses, the benefit of the doubt, right? He's been leading the nation of Israel for 40 years. You give him a break. No, God doesn't give a break with disobedience. God had to punish Moses because he disobeyed him. He thought his way was better than God's way. And Moses makes this choice to, to do something that was not what God said, and it would cost him greatly. Verse 12, we see it. it says, but the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not trust in me enough to honor me as holy in the sight of the Israelites, you will not bring this community into the land I give them. Man, talk about a major blow. Man, this must have hit Moses' heart. He has led the nation of Israel from bondage to freedom. The goal was to get to the promised land, and here that's taken from him. That's the consequences of his disobedience, and that must have hit him hard. And as we leave Moses' life right here, I think there are three lessons that we can learn from in in Moses' life right now that will lead us to three questions that we must ask in our life and in our culture. And I think the first lesson that that we, we learn is our disobedience to God reveals a lack of trust in who God is and what he can do. You see, what we see in Moses' life right now is an indicator to God and to Moses that there are pockets of his heart that aren't in full submission, surrender to God. Now, if you look at Moses' life and the full picture of his heart, I think he would say he trusted God. But in this moment, what it revealed to God and what it revealed to Moses is although Moses was a godly man, a godly leader, there were areas, small areas of his life and his heart that weren't fully surrendered and that didn't fully trust God. And that's revealed through this circumstance in his life. And I would bet 
That's true for you and I. I mean, I, I, would, I would suggest that the, mass, the, the, the vast majority of us, we would say with our lives and with our hearts, we trust God. But if you examine the heart and you take the microscope to your heart, I bet you I would be able to find pockets of your life that aren't fully trust, trusting God. I mean, that's, what, that's what's revealed here in Moses' life. He thought that his way was actually more impactful and would teach the nation of Israel the lesson that apparently he thought God couldn't get them to learn. And so he chooses his own way. In fact, look what Dr. Thomas says. It says this, Moses did more than God told him to do. He failed to believe that God's way was best and took matters into his own hands. We know he was impatient with the Israelites complaining and felt frustrated by their slowness to learn the same lesson God had previously taught them. In any case, he failed to accept God's will as best. And this is unbelief. This is a lack of trust. And I wonder if that's true in our lives today. I wonder for you if there's pockets of your heart that aren't fully submitted to God yet that you don't really trust God with that area of your life. And so let me ask you the first question, a question that we should wrestle with uh, not only today but throughout the week in our community group as we talk about this is what does your level of obedience to God reveal about your level of trust in God? You see, what obedience really tells us is how committed we are to God. And in the areas where we're disobedient to God, it really just reveals that we don't fully trust God yet. And so here's what I want you to do. I want you to go to that place in your life, that topic in your life, that you struggle to trust God. That area in your life where you just feel tension with what God said in his word, you wrestle with it, you struggle with it, and therefore you are having a hard time obeying it. What is that for you? Maybe it's in relationships. Maybe you're in the dating game right now. And you don't love what God says about dating, to not date an unbeliever or not to have sex before marriage. And you struggle with those two commands. You know God clearly said them, but you just kind of want to go down your own ro road and experience dating your own way. And so you're living in, in, in disobedience to God. You have this tension point with God. Maybe it's with your finances today. Right? You work really hard to provide for your family, and you know God says to give back to him, but yet you wrestle with that, you struggle with that, and you're just choosing your own way. Or maybe it's with gossip or lust. Maybe it's with the hatred you feel towards a, a different political party or political person. And we wrestle with things that we know God has said, and yet we're struggling to live in disobedience to him. What is that area in your life? And what it does is it reveals to you pockets of your heart that don't fully trust God. That's exactly what's happening to Moses right now is God is refining him. And he's saying, Moses, you have to understand my way is always best. And right now you don't trust my way fully. And so our disobedience reveals our lack of trust in God. So the second lesson we learn from this story, the circumstance in Moses' life, is that regret doesn't negate sin's consequences. Just because you say you're sorry, just because you ask for forgiveness, just because you feel remorse and regret for the action that you chose, it doesn't mean you get around, you get to avoid the, the weight and the sting of the consequences of your action. If anybody knows, it's, it's Moses in, in this moment, right? I'm sure after it was done, Moses, in his humility, was 
regretful. He was remorseful for the choice that he made, but yet it didn't stop God from bringing the consequences of his disobedience. And, and, and regret, sorry, forgiveness doesn't mean consequences won't happen. And I think we saw this in a unique way in our culture uh, this year. I don't know if any of you like uh, tennis. Uh, I love to watch Wimbledon in the U.S. Open. And at the U.S. Open uh, this year, something interesting happened. The guy who was predicted to win it by many people, his name was Novak Djokovic. And it was the first or second round. I don't know exactly which round it was, but he was playing someone who he would beat pretty much every single time. And he was getting frustrated with the umpire and some of the calls that they were making. And it kind of reached a boiling point, much like the guy driving the red Jeep and much like Moses with the nation of Israel. He got so frustrated that he took his racket and a ball and he tossed the ball up and he smashed it against the back wall. Right, no big deal to, to Novak Djokovic. It might call, cost him a point in, in the game, but no, no, not that big of a deal. But what he didn't realize is when he smashed the ball against the, ba the back wall, there was a line judge there. And the ball hit that line, job, line judge right in the throat. And this woman was struggling to breathe, and she was coughing, and she was wrestling, and he saw what had happened. He ran over, and he hugged her. He apologized. He was very remorseful and regretful for his actions but it didn't stop the consequences. He was kicked out of the U.S. Open that year. Because just because you're sorry doesn't take or help you avoid the consequences. I remember when I was young, 23 years old, I've only had one speeding ticket in my entire life. It's because I drive like an old person. <laughs> and that's no offense to anybody who drives like an old person. I think you drive really well. That's why I'm just following your example, okay? I follow the speed limit. That's just kind of what I do. Ask Adam Cogden on our way home from church every week. He blows right by me. You should pray for him. Okay? <laughs> and so I drive slow, but this one time I was driving from a 55 to a 35, and I missed the 35 sign, and so I was going 57 and a 35 mile an hour, and I got pulled over, and the cop came up. I was like, listen, I didn't see the sign. I'm sorry. I, I never drive like this. Check my record. I never had a ticket, and I'm so sorry. This will never happen again, and he was like, man, I get you're sorry. Here's your ticket. <laughs> Excuse me? I'm not going to pray for you. I'm a pastor. <laughs> no, just kidding, but just because you're sorry doesn't mean you get to get out of the consequences. Moses is dealing with that right now. And that leads us to our second question. And I think this is a really, really wise question. And it's simply, what might you or I lose if that's what we choose? You see, one thing I think we do when it comes to decision making that I think we often get wrong is we are usually reactionary when it comes to the consequences. And what I mean by that is most of us, we make decisions and we deal with the consequences. We, we focus on the decision at hand, and we make that decision, and we usually don't think about what it's going to cost us. And, and I think this question is actually really important because it makes you proactive in your decision-making. It actually think, makes you think about the future before you choose the present. And what I mean by that is you think, hey, how is this going to affect me? How is this going to affect my family, my business, if, if this is the road I go down? And can I speak to the younger generation just for a second? I'm talking about young business women and businessmen. I'm talking about college students. I'm talking about newly, uh, newly married people. I'm talking about high schoolers and middle schoolers. Can I tell you, you need to ingrain this question into your heart? Because it will save you a lot of heartache in your family and in your marriage and in your future if you would just think about what that decision will do to your reputation, what that decision will do to your walk with God, what that decision will do to your future, your, your marriage, or whatever it is. And can I speak to the older generation for just a second? 
I would bet for the older generation here, you've lived this out where you've lost some things based off of some poor decisions. And I think part of the older generation's responsibility in the church is to actually pour that wisdom into the younger generation, share your story and say, hey, don't go down this road. I've been there and I've done that and it cost me greatly. And so I'm gonna spare you that journey that I had to go on. Because, right, there's no retirement in church, and so we need both generations playing together to to make more and better disciples of Jesus Christ. And we have to ask that question. I wonder if Moses asked that question if he would have struck the rock. What might I lose if I act this way? For Moses, it was the promised land. And for many of us, it can be our family. It can be our marriage. It can be our future. It can be our career. Because sometimes we're so distracted with the present, we skip out on viewing the future. The third lesson I think we learned from Moses here is that this story reveals the holiness of God. Can I tell you today, we serve a God who is holy, who is just, who is truth. And and, and I, I think we all know that, right? We've heard that before. If you grew up in the church, you've been coming to church regularly, you've heard in a song or from a, a communicator that God is holy, but I, I don't think we fully understand. I think we get the, the idea of holiness, but I don't think we fully understand how holy and how big and how mighty God is and how perfect he is. And when we view this story, what we realize is that God's holiness demands him to punish Moses. Because God's holiness, the fact that God is holy, creates a problem for God. I know that sounds weird, but you would think God's holiness is the best thing about him. Well, it is, but it creates this problem for God. And here's the problem. His holiness, his perfection, the fact that he is just in truth, his holiness requires God to punish sin. You see, what you have to understand about God is he cannot tolerate, he cannot interact with sin. Why? Because he's holy. And that's bad news for us. That's news that should terrify us because guess what? The Bible's really clear on this. We are all sinners. We have all fallen short of the standard of God's holiness. And guess what that means for all of us? If we're sinners and God in his holiness is required to punish punish sin, guess what we deserve? God's wrath and his punishment. Man, that, that should terrify us. If it doesn't, I don't know what will. And so it creates a problem with a God who wants to dwell with his people that are sinners that he can't tolerate, that he must punish. And so this was a problem for God, but it was a problem he wasn't willing to solve himself. In fact, he was the only one who could solve it because although God is holy and God is just and God is truth, God is also gracious and merciful. And in his mercy, he provided a substitute for our sin. This is the greatest news in in human history that although we're sinners deserving of the punishment of God, God provided his one and only son and he poured out his punishment for our sin on his son so that we could experience the righteousness of God. In fact, this is why 2 Corinthians says this. This is for our sake, for our benefit, he made him, that was Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin so that in Jesus, in his work on the cross, in his resurrection, you and I could receive and become the beneficiaries of the righteousness of God. That's good news today. That's the gospel today because God had to punish sin. And if we're sinners, that means we gotta be punished. But instead of giving us that punishment, God 
poured his wrath and his judgment out on his son so you and I could receive not punishment, not wrath, but grace and mercy. It's much like Passover. Do you remember Passover? Where if you're marked by the perfect blood of the lamb, you paint it on your doorframe. That doorframe represents your life. If you're marked by the blood of Jesus, God's wrath and his punishment will pass over you. And here's crazy about Moses, is he predicted Jesus. <laughs> Moses, a guy who, who was on, uh, on the earth thousands of years before Jesus ever stepped foot on the earth, look what he says about Jesus. Deuteronomy 18, it says, the Lord said to me, what they say is good, and here it is. He says, I will raise up for them a prophet, that was Jesus, like you from among their fellow Israelites. And I will put my words in his mouth, and he will tell them everything I commanded him. And so here in this story, we see that God punishes sin. Moses is the direct result of that. He disobeyed God, and God had to punish him. And we see God's holiness, and at some level, it should terrify us. But instead of God's wrath and punishment, he doesn't give to us. He gave to his son, and what he offers you and I is his grace and his mercy. And when I think about God's grace, I always come back to this story. You see, growing up, I had two older brothers, and uh, we were often getting into trouble. <laughs> it's just kind of what boys do. <laughs> I'm learning that with Malachi. Our girls are usually pretty obedient. Malachi's this rambunctious little guy. <laughs> and my brothers and I, we were actually called the bad boys. Two parts, because we were bad, and our, the acronyms of our name, Barry, B, Adam, A, and D, Drew, we were the bad boys. <laughs> and I remember this one time we were around my dad's stuff, and in our house growing up, my dad always had this like corner uh, where he kept his stuff, and he didn't like anybody touching it. And uh, I remember one day we were kind of wrestling around as brothers, and dad gave us some clear instructions of things to stay away from, not to touch. And dad kind of left and went around doing his own stuff. And if you tell us boys not to touch something, you know what that means? <laughs> we want to get into it. We want, we want to touch it. And so we did. As young boys, we were rummaging through dad's stuff. We're like, this stuff is awesome. No wonder dad wouldn't want us in it. This is awesome. It's crazy. And my dad was a, a big guy, but he had this like spiritual gift to walk around the house and no one knew he was coming. And so he rounded that corner and he saw the bad boys in his stuff. And I remember my dad saying those words as a little kid that you never wanted to hear, go to the bathroom. Because at the bathroom was where he punished us for our disobedience. It was that place that we never wanted to go. And you can see, you know, an eight-year-old, a five-year-old, a three-year-old all marching together with tears in their eyes on the way to the bathroom. My dad would leave us in there for like 30 minutes to agonize over our disobedience. And what was terrible about this experience in the bathroom is as little boys, we knew we had no excuse. We knew that there was no justification, that there was no uh, words that could come out of our mouth to convince our dad that we weren't wrong. We knew we were. We knew we deserved to be punished and we knew it was coming. And so in, in this bathroom is this kind of tub uh, that was about a foot off the ground. And as little boys, we just did something unique, something we've never done. But all three of us, we, we fell on our knees before that little tub. And we prayed little kid prayers of huge faith. And I don't remember exactly what we said, but I, we, I remember saying, 
God, we were wrong. We disappointed dad. We play with his stuff and we shouldn't have. And we know we need punished and we're okay with that. And uh, little did we know, because we were facing the back wall, dad was standing right behind us. And uh, he stood over us and this will be hard for me. But dad looked at all three of us and he said, boys, stand up. He said, you guys know what you did was wrong. You disobeyed me when I told you not to touch my stuff. He said, you deserve to be punished. He said, but today, I'm gonna give you grace. He said, boys, I want you to understand this word. It's important. He says, grace is something that you can never earn and you don't deserve, but it's given to you at no cost. So today, you're gonna experience something that God has given me over and over again in my life. And so you're free to go. And man, we hightailed it out of there as fast as we could. And today, I want you to understand that God is holy. And out of his holiness, it demands him to punish sin. You and I, we deserve to be punished because we are sinners. But God made a way to pour out that punishment on his one and only son who was perfect so that you and I, like us three little boys in that room, could go away and not receive punishment, but be given grace. And that leads me to my last question. And it might be the most important question that you ever answer in your life is, has God's perfection covered your imperfection? Has God's grace been poured out into your life where it covers every inch of your flaws and your failures and your sin and where you receive what Jesus accomplished through his death and his resurrection and God just freely gives you not his wrath, not his judgment, but his mercy and his grace. And for some of us today, we've experienced that. We revel in that gospel. And what it means is that in those pockets of our life where we don't trust God, we realize how trustworthy he is and we surrender them. Even though we might not agree with God, even we don't like what God chose, we trust him because he's worthy of our trust. But maybe you're here today and you have never stepped into a relationship with Jesus Christ where he pours a grace on your life that is like any other grace that will change your life. I want to give you an opportunity to do that. So if you just bow your heads and close your eyes just for a second, and maybe that's you today, where you're ready, you can feel your heart beating, you can feel the spirit moving you, and, and today you want to step into that grace of Jesus Christ. Here's all you got to do. It's really simple. God, I'm a sinner. Just say these words, God, I'm a sinner, and my sin deserves to be punished. But God, you made a way. Jesus, you made a way where I don't have to receive that wrath, but I can receive that grace. And so today, I believe, Jesus, what you did on that cross, and I believe that you conquered death in your resurrection, and you give me victory over that sin. And so today, I want to be covered by your blood, and I want to be covered by your grace. I'm turning from my failures. I'm turning from my sin. And will you forgive me? And will you lead me from this day forward? Amen. If you, if you said that prayer. Would you just do something really simple? Let, let, let us know. A simple way to do that is just to go to iwant.info 
There's a big banner on there that says, I said yes to Jesus. You click that, give us your information. And here's my promise to you is I will personally follow up with you. I will send you an email. I will party like crazy today knowing you crossed that line of faith. I will rejoice. I'll dance with my kids and I will send you a Bible personally that you can walk with Jesus and learn what it means to follow Jesus. And you will be part of a family. You know, there's a reason why we say welcome home here. It's because this is a family. It's the family of God, and we celebrate life change. We go crazy over people crossing the line of faith. And so I would just say to you very early, welcome. Welcome home and welcome to the family. Would you pray with me? God, man, we celebrate your goodness and your grace. Grace that changes wretches like us. God, may we never grow stale of that. May we never grow numb to the gospel that is so good that it should fire us up, that we should rejoice in it every day. And God, I believe today there's a Christ follower who maybe been walking with you for a long time, maybe someone who's new to faith, that we that has pockets of their life where they're not submitting to you, they're not surrendering to you. And I pray that they would learn to trust you more today. And God, I believe today there's someone who crossed that line of faith. And God, I pray that they would know we are with them, we are for them, and we will surround them with love to help them look more like Jesus each and every day. Thanks for loving us, God, even when we didn't deserve it. In Jesus' name, amen.